You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 122 of a Life in Ruins podcast, where we investigate the careers of those living a life in ruins. I am your host, Connor Johnen, and we might be joined by our co-host, David Ian Howe. He thinks Starlink is the greatest thing on planet Earth, and every time we try to record with him, it never, never happens. So maybe he'll be here. Carlton is off doing adult stuff, so we're hoping to catch him back one of these days once he's settled in and got all his stuff together from moving across the country. I do want to mention before we start our interview, thank you so much for bearing with us and allowing us to take a month off of not creating new content. We all needed a break. I needed to go to Hawaii and do nothing for like 10 days. David needed to do needed to do like stupid paleo-Indian archaeology where they're finding like cool points and blah, 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 blah. And Carlton just needed a break from a lot of things. So thank you so much. We will... Feedback. We're going to be producing new content every week. So, but thank you for giving us the month off. For this week's episode, we are joined by Beth Potter, a PhD candidate at the University of Kansas. Beth, how are you doing today? I'm pretty good. Yeah. Well, thank you for coming on. We met through, um, and I know David met you through uh, the Lapel Field School or the Lapel site up in Wyoming. We'll, we'll get more into this later. The first time I met you, I think you were in like your full. I'm getting DNA costume, yeah. which is pretty Suited awesome. Up. <laughs> All garbed up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, no, it's uh, it's great to have you on. We're super interested to hear uh, about your research, and I guess David is here. So uh, we we like to start off these interviews by just asking, kind of where your first interaction with science, archaeology, anthropology was when you were growing up. I was an archaeology nerd pretty young. Actually, I got super into Egypt. And then when I was in like middle school, I had a subscription to archaeology magazine because I was I was a nerd nerd for my 13th birthday. The like Archaeology Institute of America conference was in Boston and I lived in Maine. And that's what I asked for for my birthday was to go to an academic conference because I saw it advertised in a magazine. That's awesome. <laughs> so... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It started with Egypt and then it kind of, I didn't go to college for it or I didn't apply to college thinking I was going to do archaeology though. I applied as a like pure math major. And then I was like, I'm going to take introduction to archaeology. Cause like I used to like that. That'll be fun. And then I got sucked back in real fast. Yeah. What was it like being a 13 year old at an academic conference whoa honestly it was a lot more fun than conferences now (laughs) because like there were no expectations there was no pressure I was just there because I was like these are things that I'm interested in and I didn't know like what I was listening to in the sense of like what academic presentations were I didn't really know what to expect in that sense I was just like people are going to be talking about these cool things that I already know I'm interested in and they did and they were cool. And some of them sucked. And I learned very quickly that some of the ones that have really cool titles are super boring. Yeah. I could just do what I wanted and nobody really, there was no expectations, which is kind of nicer than now. Well, then you didn't have like those awkward interactions where you're like, I know you, but I read your paper somewhere, but I don't know how to 
interact with you. Yeah. That, that happens to me every single time I go. It's like, oh, yeah. Or like trying to like cold introduce yourself to somebody because you like, I need to network with this person, but I don't know them, but I know I need to know them. It's the most there awful was, and like awkward thing you can possibly do. It's terrible. Yeah. And like yeah. you have to have somebody like help you and hold your hand to be like, who is, can you, can you introduce me to this person? But you can't do that. So you have to just walk up to them and be like, I'm Beth. <laughs> it's like, I'm, I'm Beth. I want to know you. Do we know each other now? Thank you. Exactly. Uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's super hard. Um, so what was like your, since you went at 13, like what was your takeaway from it? It was interesting how much more niche like research could be than I had really expected, like how expansive it was and how like really detailed people could get into things that right. were like particularly interesting to them. Huh. Yeah, I would yeah, be terrified. I, yeah, me too. I mean, because I feel like your exposure to that stuff is like Nat Geo or History Channel, which is like those broad concepts. But you're looking at like site by site or data point by data point and kind of seeing it from like a whole different perspective. Yeah. And it, it was AIA, so it was more like classical than obviously what it like classical in Egypt and old world stuff. And there were a lot of like more more tie-ins with literature and stuff like that than what I do now. But it also made me feel like, it's like I understood whenever I understood something, I felt so cool. And looking back on it, that's not cool. That was just, I was just a nerd, but I felt so cool. That's good. I mean, I think we all kind of like strive for that, especially as kids, because you're in that like weird spot where you don't want to like be outcasted for being a nerd but also at the same time you're like super into your niche interests and you wanted to pursue them i assume that like everybody that was there thought that my mom was an academic and that i was a tag-along child oh it's like it yeah it was the opposite (laughs) (laughs) you were the academic oh i'm the academic So, Beth, by the way, I'm back. We met at LaPrell as well, for the people who didn't know. I think you're a really cool person. Also, Connor, I don't know if you know this, Beth ate 10 burritos. She beat Naomi's record. <laughs> yeah, I did. Yeah. I'm really proud yeah. of that. I'm super proud of you. Uh, at LaPrell, whatever's left over from dinner, Rich Adams makes into burritos, and he makes a lot of them. And some people try to beat the record, and Beth did it. So, Killing spree. Um, <laughs> wow. <laughs> Uh, segueing from that burrito epi- like episode though, like, did you learn how to crush burritos at the Ivy League school known as Harvard? Yes, it's a time-honored tradition at Harvard. Actually, all of the freshmen gather, and part of your initiation, um, you have to eat burritos that are shaped like John Harvard's foot. <laughs> Wild. Yeah. Checks out. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if when we talked, because I sat next to you and I was like, yo, tell me your life story, because you seemed really interesting. I don't remember if you mentioned Harvard. You might have just said you went to school in Massachusetts. I think I just said I went to school in Massachusetts. Because I would have remembered Harvard. Good for you, one. And then what was that like? I mean, it was going from a small town in Maine to a very wealthy school was weird. Yeah. 
I, I thought I knew what rich was. And then I went to Harvard and I was like, oh, <laughs> oh, that's what rich is. <laughs> yeah. People are like, my grandfather came on the Mayflower in 1641. I was just, I, I specifically remember being in line at a Starbucks and somebody was like, I can't go on the family vacation because I have to intern at my father's law firm. Holy shit. And I was like, <laughs> I'm sorry. What, what, what was what? all that? <laughs> none, of, none of that computes. <laughs> like, didn't, was it Legally Blonde? Was it, was she from, did she go to Harvard? Or she goes she to go Harvard Law. Okay, that's, uh, that's yeah. like my only actual exposure, exposure to Harvard besides knowing that it's, that it's habit and fancy and whatnot. Um, so, but you went there for mathematics originally. You were that's how I applied, yeah. What, uh, what, what was your goal? Were you going to be a math teacher or were you going to do some Einstein calculations? What were you feeling? I don't know what I possibly had in mind afterwards, but I just wanted to do pure math. Damn. Yeah. And then I didn't like the math department as much as I expected to. And I loved my, my intro arc. Turns out I still loved arc. So good. I started as a like combined social anthro and arc. At Harvard, we have concentrations. We don't have majors. We have concentrations. And so as an anthro concentrator, you can be, so you can be social or arc as your like focus. And I started as a combined focus on social and arc and then switched to just arc. Bio is separate. That's H-E-B and linguistics is also its own department. Wow. I guess that's kind of like old worldy. Like that's how like those schools are from the people overseas we've interviewed. It's no, the, the H-E-B human evolutionary biology is biological anthropology at Harvard. And that split was political from my understanding. Hmm. Ooh. That people yeah. just didn't go along with each other. Wasn't Bioanthropologists fighting with each other? No. No way. I know. Wasn't that, wasn't it yeah. UCLA that was the same thing? Or was that the social and, and art? Yeah, there's a schism. Hated each other. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think most of the California schools are like that. Yeah, that checks out. What? We are classes like, and what was your kind of, did you have any like hands-on classes where you were like, got to play around with artifacts or things like that? So like our tutorial, tutorials are like, they were like these little seminars that you took with everybody else who was an archaeology person in your grade, in your year, whatever. And so we all had tutorial together and our arc tutorials were small. And for one of them, we got to go through all of the Peabody Museum's collections and put together like an exhibit, which was really cool. Sweet. And then they have a lot of Moche stuff. So it's Harvard's collections are, there's a lot of like South and some Central America stuff. Actually a lot of Central America too. There's a ton of Moche stuff. And so we got to like use different like Moche pots for a research project and stuff, which was, that was pretty neat. Moche pots are interesting. They are interesting. (laughs) (laughs) We've had this talk before uh, on a, I think it was a 20 minute rant one time. So if the audience is not familiar, moche pots are also known as moche sex pots because they have a lot of phalluses and like non-phalluses on them. 
but I'm assuming the ones you were working with weren't just those, right? It was mostly those. That's a lot of what we have. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping you would say something like that. Cool. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think most of like the cool Mayanists and not Mayan archaeology stuff does come from Harvard, from what I've understood. So that's that checks out. Yeah. The honestly, like undergrad access to collections in the Peabody Museum is phenomenal. That was a really cool thing. Didn't didn't they take like all the stuff from Machu Picchu? That was also a Harvard thing. We took a lot of stuff. We we took a lot of stuff. There's like an entire staircase in the repository that's just what? It's just chilling. There's a there's a whole last staircase. That's insane. That's really cool. <laughs> I'm somebody put it on a boat in crates and put it on a boat in 18 something and now it's at Harvard. Yeah, there's a lot of like repatriation issues and things like that that probably need to be discussed at some no, point. Man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, besides concentrating on mochi sex pots and burrito championships. What was your, like, like, obviously you did what you're doing now as a concentration, but like, what was kind of some stuff you did as an undergrad? I mean, so my field school was in the Northeast and it was, okay. we were looking for paleo Indian sites, which nobody at Harvard does. Like nothing that I was doing was what anybody there did. There was one lithicist there at the time, Ofer Bar Yosef, but he was trying to retire. He wasn't taking any undergrads on to advise so like when I was trying to do like my senior thesis, there was like nobody who knew what I was doing. <laughs> like old American rocks. So there was one person who worked in North America, Matt Liebman, who was phenomenal. He was like, I don't know what you're doing, but like, I know how to write. <laughs> yeah. And I can put you in contact with people. So... At your field school, you worked with Heather and Nathaniel, correct? Or Heather? Heather. Heather was my, yeah, she was my crew chief um, awesome. my field school. She oh, was on wild. I didn't realize that. Ago. Yeah. That's awesome. Connections. Jeez. That's how you found out about Wyoming, right? Yeah. Because I think, well, I think she was still at Tulsa at okay. that point. Because Jesse Boyd came up that year as well. All the connections. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I work with Jesse um, every every day, most days. Nice. Oh yeah, right. Because they they met each other here, probably. Anyway, so after that, you went to graduate school, and that was in Canada. And I think wanna... we're at a good spot where we can to pick that up next segment, so people can hear about that transition. Life and Ruins Podcast One Twenty Two. We'll be right back. Welcome back to episode 122 of Life and Roots Podcast. I am live from my school bus that I live in because my life is weird in the middle of Wyoming. We are here with Beth Potter, and she is going to tell us about why she made the critical life choice that we all somehow make of going to grad school that we regret immediately, but also don't regret. And why in Canada? That was a lot of question. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> why did I go to grad school? I missed research. <laughs> I liked doing research, the like little taste of it I got as an undergrad, and then I missed it. I was teaching high school straight out of college, and I loved it, but I was really ready to leave that school, and I mm-hmm. missed research, and it just felt like the right timing. So, Okay. How long of a break did you have? It was just like two years. Okay. So what like brought you specifically to 
the university that you went to? So I applied to a few places. I wasn't sure if it was like the paleo Indian or if it was the Northeast that I had really enjoyed more because I knew I like, I enjoyed my undergrad thesis work, but I wasn't sure which part of it that I had really liked. So I applied to places that was like what there were one or the other. And Montreal had some collections that I could work with uh, that were from a Southern Quebec site. And I was able to get in-province tuition, which was a major factor as well. In-province. That is a term I haven't heard before, but it makes sense because we have in-state. When I was writing, it was like $500 a semester. Yeah. Wyoming and it came with a... Cheap. No. No, and it comes with an automatic... The visa comes with a work permit automatically for up to 20 hours a week. So like I was fully able to just work part-time and sustain myself. That's awesome. I made I made all the wrong decisions in life. <laughs> yeah. It was a really great deal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what was like grad school like for you there? And like, what did you do? We'll talk about that first. We can get into what you researched after, but like, yeah, everyone's grad school experience is quite interesting. Yeah. It's not like a huge department. There, it wasn't like a thing where there were classes that were offered like every semester that every grad student had to take or anything like that. And so, but it was very focused on like hunter gatherers and landscape use, use and niche exploitation was like a lot of what my coursework focused on, which I didn't really know going into it, what that all meant, like what the coursework available necessarily meant to a degree, but it ended up working out really well for me. It was definitely weird not being a native speaker and trying to be part of a grad program because it's also university culture is like very different in French Canada. People are more likely to go places that are like closer to home and live at home. So it wasn't like the department is all encompassing in the way it really can be in the U.S., like you said, you were going, you're going to, into the heart of like French Canada. Did you have to learn French to kind of get by and, and, and meet people and whatnot? Yeah. My classes were in French. My advisor was bilingual. Um, I worked with Adrian Burke and he speaks English, which was nice. And I ended up writing my thesis in English because I knew that I wanted to apply to PhD programs in the U.S. Hmm. And so the university like just offered me an exemption for that. Cool. But yeah, the courses in French was that that was like exhausting. It was really exhausting to be trying to function at that like academic level in a second language. Was he a tall dude with black hair and glasses? Yep. Tall dude, black hair. I met him in Rome. Probably glasses. Yeah. Okay. Sounds right. We were at a conference and I remember he spoke French with everybody, but he was one of the only people that spoke English. And I was like, oh, thank God. (laughs) Yeah. Good talk to him. Yeah. Yeah. No, he's, he's wicked nice. Yeah. I can't imagine taking advanced degrees in other languages. It was hard enough in English and my home language, you know, reading. So you did like, you read like Bordeaux in like Bordeaux language. It's convenient because so much lithic stuff comes out of France. Hmm. So it's, it has continued to work out in my favor. 
somehow. Nice. But <laughs> does it make any more sense, like in its natural French, or is it still kind of hurts your oh, brain? Oh no, no, it still hurts. Okay. Okay. I think it hurts more because French is so like indirect compared to English. Yeah. And like of the romance languages, French is like the hardest for me to like pick out anything. Like I can understand Spanish and like some Italian, but then French, I'm like, I have no idea. So like props to you for going into that. Everything sounds the same. (laughs) Everything. Like all, all of the words just sound the same. It's just, it's a pile of vowels. That's the name of the episode. Uh, <laughs> a pile of vowels. <laughs> oh, right. Write that down. Uh, yeah. So as part of your thesis, you wrote on lithic raw material usage in the archaic Northeast. What did you find out about lithic raw material usage in the archaic Northeast as part of your research? <sighs> it's such a generic title. <laughs> I <laughs> Yeah. So I was really just trying to identify like, an area of archaic occupation at this one site and then see if there was anything to be discovered from the debitage, basically. And I did end up find, identifying some like activity areas that there was a very clear area where people were like finishing tools because all the debitage there was just like pressure flakes and stuff. And then otherwise it's pretty much what you'd expect a lot more like big chunky stuff out of the local materials and bunches of teeny pressure flakes and stuff from farther away, which is not surprising, yeah. but now it's written down. Uh, I'm going to interject really quick because I don't think we've ever defined debitage, to be honest listening. So like when you're making stone tools, like you pop the flakes off and then there's like tiny little flakes that come off in later stage reduction, but also just break in half. And like that would be called debitage, which is French for, is it trash? So when you say debitage in French for like lithics, actually, if you're talking about debitage, it's the process of flaking. Really? So that's annoying and confusing. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Well, for the Americans listening, debitage is the stuff you find at an archaeological site that's on the ground, (laughs) small flakes. Well, and and it can be things... That, that turn into tools beforehand. So like a flake that you knock off is technically debitage, but once you start creating into a tool or thing like that, it becomes something different. Yeah, we can get into the weeds on that too. Like a core is yeah. technically debitage. This, <laughs> this is jumping ahead, but there is sure. absolutely a video of Erica Blecka defining debitage in a Valley Girl accent as <laughs> like a small potato chip like thing <laughs> that you can use to cut material. We have to we have to talk about her her and Brian because they are they're fantastic people. Absolutely fantastic people. The the debitage was about what you expect, how you expect people to be using different materials. I was able to define some activity areas, which was kind of neat. Good. I didn't think I was gonna be able to. It's nice to know when that stuff works and yeah. Get like good results. Yeah. <laughs> uh, speaking of results, what was your thesis on? Did you enjoy the thesis? And like, did you, did you get what you wanted out of grad school? Yeah, I, I did enjoy it. I wasn't sure if I was going to enjoy it, mm-hmm. which is why I applied only for terminal master's programs. Cause I didn't want to be dived in and end up deciding. I actually hated research mm-hmm. and that I was just like, being nostalgic for it or something 
but I really enjoyed my project. It took me until kind of the end of it to decide that I did really enjoy it and I did want to keep doing it. So I ended up, that was past obviously application cycles to go straight into a PhD from there. So I ended up taking another year off between my master's and PhD. Smart. Good for you. So, I mean, obviously going from French Canada to Kansas is like the next natural transition. I mean, it's, it's basically the same culture. So (laughs) same location, you know, (laughs) same language. You can't understand it. There's lots of vowels. Yeah. I don't think that is. (laughs) (laughs) What, What made you choose the university of Kansas specifically? I ended up here primarily for my dissertation project. I was looking for lithicists who had projects that were like very hard science-y based. And I wanted something that I could apply to existing collections because I see archaeology is like going to be less digging in the future. So that was what I was looking for. And so when I reached out to Fred Soleil at KU, he suggested that I could try an ancient DNA approach to lithics and that we had the facilities for that here. And so I'm, I'm pretty much here for this project. Cool. And the ancient DNA stuff, like, I guess I just want to dive into that. Like, how do you extract DNA out of stone tools and things like that? It's pretty much the same as you do for anything else. So like all DNA extraction is really simple. You digest whatever's containing the cell so that the DNA can be free. And then you try to wash away everything that isn't DNA so that then you can just like drop the DNA into a nice stable buffer where it won't degrade. That was a really clean explanation. Yeah, that's cool. Never really like thought it like that. Okay. Yeah. So the variations on it are depending on like what material you're trying to get DNA from, whether you're trying to get endogenous DNA. So something that DNA from the thing itself like a bone or a tooth, or if you're trying to get non-endogenous DNA, which is just generally environmental DNA. So like if you have a soil sample and you're trying to get bacterial DNA or do paleo-environmental reconstruction, those are all just environmental because they're non-endogenous. And so those are give you a different extraction protocol just based on the material that you're using. And then the ancient part just means it has to happen in a clean room environment where everything is kept sterile and it's pressurized and you're working in like positively pressurized hoods so that you don't introduce modern contamination. Sick. So like hard science. Yeah. Yeah. I think I mentioned at the beginning, like when we first met, yeah, you were in full <laughs> like a CDC, like it was coronavirus stage one. Like we had just found it, you know, like head to toe, doing the extraction you have so you have to do that in the field and in the lab as part of that to keep it kind of sterile essentially right yeah the problem with modern contamination is that it's really high quantity in comparison to ancient stuff so dna degrades over time and so when you're working with ancient samples it's just super low quantity and anything modern can overwhelm what you're looking for So that's why, like, even in my field collections, I'm garbed up in bleaching. For the Americans listening and me, what is endogenous? Endogenous means it's, like, inherent to the thing itself. So an 
endogenous DNA sample would be you're trying to get dog DNA from a dog mandible that you found at the site. Thank you for the explanation and using dogs. Okay, sweet. So do you use collections, I guess, field collected specimens and stuff that's been collected in the past as part of your research? Yeah. So for my dissertation, I have two, I'm working with three sites and two of those are just like curated previously excavated collections. And then the prowl, which I field collected. And that's because that's one of the things that I want to explore a little bit is how much of a difference does it make if we're able to collect things in the field? Because while there has been work getting ancient DNA from lithics, it's all been on existing previously collected specimens. Okay. And I guess we can end here. You cannot pick them up freshly dug and then lick them. You Um, cannot. And it's so sad. The reason I say that is I had known Beth for about 10 minutes and she took out a bunch of artifacts and said, lick this biface. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Uh, Because she had taken them last year so that, you know, they were in that like a sterile environment and she could extract the DNA, but she brought them back this year. And then now everyone could get their licks in, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't, um, I don't know how licking specifically became the thing. It was, that was probably me. I, I would wager so because like also we would pull flakes out while we were digging and you would lick them immediately. <laughs> Because I could. It was so exciting to be able to. I get it. I get it. And I I think I mentioned this on like one of the past podcasts. Like it's a weird thing to explain to other people that you're licking things that were like buried for thousands of years. But it is oddly satisfying when something sticks to your tongue and it's bone and you're like, okay, it's weird. I think it's specifically because I was telling Crabe not to lick things in 2019 because he would... Whenever something came up, I would, I think it might have, Craig might have been threatening to lick things. Sounds about that, right. that sounds like him. Seems possible. Yeah. On that note, let's come back in the third <laughs> segment of episode 122 <laughs> and pick Beth's, pick Beth's brain. There we go. Okay. Uh, we'll be right back. Welcome back to episode 122 of a Life in Ruins podcast. And we are going to start the segment off by continuing the last segment where we were talking about things and stuff, I think. Oh, yeah. We were talking about DNA, and we wanted to... So, obviously, you're in the throes of your dissertation, you're working on stuff, etc. What kind of results have they found using these sort of methods, and what have have they found on stone tools, um, either in your, your case or in other cases in the published literature? Yeah, so what I'm doing is really closely based on some existing methodologies, but they're old. So this was actually something that people started trying in the like 90s and early 2000s. Extracting DNA from stone tools is just another environmental DNA extraction. And the way that you do it kind of follows the same as everything else. The biggest difference is that you sonicate the tools before you extract from them. And that's based on some protein analysis work that was done in, I want to say the late 80s, where they sonicated stone tools, they stuck them in a sonication bath and then did protein analysis based on what was shaken out of the tools. So sonication meaning pull stuff off of it? Sonication, like um, like sonic, like sound 
pulse is like ultrasonic waves. Whoa. Okay, cool. And so, so when it goes through a bath, it makes all these tiny little bubbles. And so looking at for, for the DNA stuff, actually, um, one of the papers is looked at, they use these little fluorescent beads and they got them trapped in micro cracks in the surfaces of lithics. And so they lit up, right? They fluoresced. And so you could see like there's different size beads being trapped in micro cracks and then sonicated them to see if it got them out. And it does. The teeny little bubbles go into the cracks and knock out the little fluorescent beads. And it works the same way with proteins or DNA. Sweet. And so then you can just extract from the liquid. So Orange Shanks was a biologist who did some work on that. And he actually, he went to Wyoming, I think as like a visiting scholar or something like that. I'm not in the early 2000s. And so he collaborated with some folks out there, Marcel Kornfeld, and I'm not sure who else. And they did some experimental work with tools that have been used to butcher animals. And then they washed them and then tried to extract from them to see if they were able to identify what they've been used on. It's some really neat stuff. Were they successful in, in their yeah. endeavors? Yeah. Their work was successful. I think they had some mystery ones where they like butchered animals and didn't tell the people like what they had used them on and then extracted it to see if they could. They did it as like a blind study and it worked. They then tried to use it on tools from Bugus Holding. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. It's one of those ones that I've only ever read. I think that's, I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that one, they, they did get a species identification. I think they only got a few and I know one of them was feline and they did mention the possibility of like probable contamination from somebody that had a cat at home on the crew. There weren't, there weren't smilodons or not at that time. I don't think so. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> or domestic short hair cats running around the plains at that point. Yeah. Yeah. But that's sort of where it comes back to like my super sterile collection procedures is to try like see if we can avoid anything like that. Cool. And what else have they found? They found in like other publications, they found DNA from obviously probably elk, deer, bison extinct you know etc so that's like pretty much actually the limit like what i just went over is basically the limit of what's been done with dna from lithics in 2017 there was an undergrad at montana who used the protocol and identified something links bobcat cougar family on some stone tools from the bridge river site but that's the most recent thing that's been done and that's that's pretty much it there's other examples in the literature of people getting non-endogenous DNA from artifacts. So things like binding agents for rock art pigment, which is some cool stuff that was also really early. That was some 80s work. Hmm. And there's there's also like there's stuff with like quids and menstrual aprons. There's a pipe stems paper, which was really that's a really cool one. But there's not a lot of non-endogenous DNA collected from artifacts in the literature. Cool. So, so is it in your kind of goal in this PhD, and you mentioned this kind of, is that you're you're really wanting to get those methods 
the methodologies down and then you can really get into what you're finding and things like that. So it's kind of like a two part kind of thing. And the sites that I'm working with, even like the, the site choices, like it is really methodological. I'm trying to get a real latitude span with my site so that I can look at questions of preservation depending on diff- like environment and climate as well. Cause a lot of, and it might end up being entirely methodological. If I don't get any useful species ideas off of any of them, then it's just going to be a purely methodological disc. But I, we definitely need those. That's exciting. I mean, to be on the, the, it seems like the leading edge of that stuff, but also seems like it would be hard and difficult because you're not building off of an existing sort of literature. You're almost writing it yourself at that it's, point. Yeah, it's the Wild West of ancient DNA is sort of how we keep describing it in our lab group. There's a couple of us that are sort of working in these like non-endogenous collections, like protocols. And it's it's really weird. It's also, I don't know. I mean, it's I can't like do it wrong if there's not an established right way yet, I guess, which is kind of nice. I personally think ancient DNA is dope and like a tech, but I've heard a lot of criticisms to it, especially when pulling like lipids out of like stone tools. And like some people are like, oh, I don't buy that. Like, is there a lot of that or is that more to do with like bias at a site? What do you mean? Like, um, this might be different, I guess, but like pulling like the fat off the Clovis point and saying it's proboscidean at Laprelle. Like, I don't know. Oh. A lot of people were like that. Yeah. Is that even DNA? So, that's so that's not DNA. That's um, oh, okay. proteinomics, and so I think that I think that was a proteinomics thing. Um, Got it. Okay. With the Lapral stuff, but those so with those a lot of it is like kind of old school hemoglobin mm-hmm. work. One of the limitations of that, like for the questions that I'm interested in, is that you have to look at like specific species, and so. When you send out your sample, a lot of the places will give you like three or four species that you can choose from to match to. And that, it. that's it. So you're trying, you're like, okay, I want you to look at proboscidean, bison, and I don't know, ungulates or whatever. Whereas with high throughput sequencing with DNA, you can just sequence what's there and then run that against databases essentially and see what matches. Mm-hmm. And so that it's not, it never eliminates all bias, but it does, it lets you cast a much wider net. Gotcha. Which doesn't answer your question. No, but, but I realize <laughs> now that like my question was misasked. What did you find through the Laprelle stuff? I don't think I even asked you that when I was in the field. I don't, so I don't have results for that yet. I've only just finished like processing the artifacts. So just that sonication and I'm going to start on extractions now that I'm back. Got it. So it'll be... A while still. So TBD, we'll have her, we'll have you back on and we'll, we'll chat about it. So you obviously, at some point, you're going to finish your dissertation. What would be like the next ideal step for you as part of like your, your arc or anthro life journey? I do want to stay in academia, which I know is a giant gamble these days. But I, I love the teaching and I like being able to run my own research and I would like more like autonomy in that eventually. So I do want to stay in academia. So I guess I'm going to be on the postdoc market. 
Hey, it, I mean, it works. I mean, it, there, yeah. obviously it's a brutal market, but if it's what you're wanting to do in life, like I think it, I think True. a lot of what we see with like people struggling in it and it is because they have, maybe they're not fully committed to it or don't have a good idea of going in what they're going up against, I think is like the big things we right. see with academia. Yeah. And I mean, my plan is I will give it five years and plan to reevaluate in five years, whether it's worth continuing to fight for that career. The nice thing is that all of the DNA work gives me a really good industry out. If I want it, it's a good off ramp. When we were talking in the circle at camp, I really respected the fact that you were like, you said exactly that, like, you want to do the academic route, you went back to do it, and like you're set to do that. However, you do have a backup plan and like you're fully content to do something different, if not academia. And I thought that was like solid. I haven't heard someone say that before. I mean, I'm just trying to be realistic. I know right. I know how many job applications Heather, for example, put out there mm-hmm. before she finally got a tenure track job. It takes a while and it's a gauntlet. I don't yeah, I don't know if I can do that or not. <laughs> but if 23andMe calls, you'd go work for them? I, or is, are, you, are those things applicable, sort of what you're doing now? I would rather work for the for Embark, the dog DNA one. Oh, but, yeah. okay. you know. I guess another thing I'd, I'd like to say, and I'll, I'll let you continue after this, but like even like not having the data, like the analysis stuff done, like what you're doing, it's pretty like a great example of how much work and like planning and how much like logistics of scientific collection you have to do in archaeology. And a lot of people think it's just digging holes, but like you're doing the hard like science of it. And it takes a lot of prep work and a lot of like you want to make sure it's done right. Yeah. And it's it's just so many hours in the lab for the like short amount of time that you spend on site. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like what? Like a month max in the summer at a site? Like it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, on on that note, I, you know, thank you so much for coming on and chatting with us. And, you know, we really appreciate and are excited to see where this stuff kind of goes in the future. We're not, we're not, I wouldn't say we're personally invested, but we're, it feels personal to figure out what's going on in Laprell and, you know, and you, we, we have connections so much. So it's really nice. It's been really nice chatting with you and we're excited to see where it goes in the future. Yeah. Do you, do you have anything you want to tell the general public and the world about archaeology before you go? I don't know. Send your small children to archaeology conferences. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> That's okay. There we go. Um, so before we end the show, what are a couple sources that you would recommend for people interested in lithics or ancient DNA? So for lithics, I think George O'Dell's lithic analysis is a really accessible intro. Andrevsky is kind of what I use more now, but I think Odell is a more accessible way to get into it for sure. And for ancient DNA, there was a review paper last year by Orlando et al. It's in Nature Primers, I think. And it's just ancient DNA analysis. That's yeah, Orlando et al. Awesome. Um, and I, I will also plug Bob's book, uh, The Fifth Beginning, <laughs> the Robert Kelly which we are currently getting royalties off Sorry of at this point. Yeah, I was going to say, we, we need royalties at this point. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I guess, where can our listeners find you? Like, to reach out for research, or like, ideas, or just follow you on social media? 
So I'm on Instagram as blpotter13. That's mostly jujitsu things. So that's not. <laughs> oh shit, we should have talked about that. Yeah. And then I'm on Twitter as bpots13. Okay. Yeah. Um, we will put those in the show notes. TZ, because I'm cool. so this is a life in ruins we have to ask you the most important question so if you had the choice to do it all over again would you one go to an academic conference at age 13 and two also continue into academia and live your life in ruins yes and absolutely yes (laughs) (laughs) that's a great answer so we just interviewed Beth Potter. You can find her on Instagram at blpotter13, on Twitter at bpots13. And it's your favorite time, audience. Please be sure to rate and review the podcast. Provide us with feedback on whichever podcasting platform you're using to listen to our show. If you provide us feedback, we do better and we can get better episodes and better content out. So just go on there and click the little button. Give us a star, half star, five stars, whatever you want to do. I'll wrap this up. But thank you. Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at a Life in Ruins podcast. And you can also email us at a Life in Ruins podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. All right. It's everybody's most not favorite time. It's time for a dad joke. What's your joke, Connor? I heard something recently in, in the news. Did you hear that they aren't making 12 inch rulers any longer? Oof. That was that was good. <laughs> I don't they think Beth making is, 13, that's making thirteen thirteen inch <laughs> <laughs> of of all the jokes you've done in the wild, that one was pretty it was deadpan good. Wow. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I need to shower and with that we are out this episode was produced by chris webster from his rv traveling the united states tristan boyle in scotland dig tech llc cultural media and the archaeology podcast network and was edited by chris webster this has been a presentation of the archaeology podcast network visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com contact us at chris at archaeology podcast network.com